Welcome to Economics Amplified, a podcast where we talk about insights on today's biggest economic issues being tackled by researchers at UChicago's Becker Freeman Institute. Amanda Egan is interested in the ways that laws and regulations play out in the real world, often yielding unintended consequences. She visited the Institute this spring and spoke about her recent work to evaluate policies that eliminate questions about previous criminal convictions from job applications. Advocates of these ban-the-box policies have argued that these laws could increase employment for minorities, but some economic theories imply that they could have negative consequences for minorities without records. Egan and her co-authors designed a field experiment to see if the policy performs as intended. And the idea uh, that the advocacy organizations have that are pushing for these policies is to allow people with criminal history to get their foot in the door with employers. Hopefully those employers will then go on to hire them. Maybe this could reduce recidivism for criminals and help them kind of gain societal attachments. Um, you know, but one potential outcome of this is that employers, if they care about criminal history, they might look at other information on the application, such as the race of the applicant or where they went to school or um, you know, that whether they have employment gaps in their history. They might look at that information and try to infer uh, the likelihood that somebody has a criminal history. And so rather than decreasing racial inequality in hiring, this could actually increase racial inequality if employers are using something like race to infer this information about criminal history. And so we really just wanted to test um, you know, what effects this policy was having on racial inequality in hiring by sending out um, fictitious job applications on behalf of young male applicants to low-level entry, low-skill entry-level jobs in New Jersey and New York City, both before and after the policy went into effect, to see how employers were reacting to things like the race of the applicant when they couldn't see this information anymore. So what made a field experiment in particular the optimal way to study this problem? So in our case, um, when we're studying these ban-the-box policies, there's not a lot of information on how employers are making interview decisions. We, we might know who's eventually being employed, but we don't know who's being interviewed. And so by doing the field experiment this way, we can get data on something that data does not already exist for. We can also control exactly what the actors or the subjects are seeing. You know, so if we're looking at administrative data, we don't necessarily know all employers had before they made their employment decisions. In this case, we can control exactly what those employers are seeing before they make those decisions. And I think that those are both very helpful in terms of thinking about how to answer at least our particular question. Egan says that field experiments offer a unique complement to other ways that economists can evaluate policy efficacy. In some sense, they're all very useful. So, you know, in other methods, we can use existing data to evaluate a policy. So let's, you know, if we use this specific example, um, I think in order to evaluate the ban the box policy, there's several different um, actors we could imagine being affected by the policy. So we want to know how employers are going to change their interviewing decisions. We want to know how employers are going to change their hiring decisions. We want to know how applicants are going to change their application decisions. Right? And so I think that you need different methodologies and different data to answer, in some sense, all of those questions. We can use existing employment data to think about how you know, this is affecting actual employment outcomes, but we can't use existing data to see how it's affecting interview decisions. And so I think that you know, it's going to help us answer one important part of 
the question that can't necessarily be answered by you know other other types of policy evaluation tools. Reconciling differing approaches to different components of the problem is a big part of why conferences and visits beyond your home campus are important. They offer an opportunity to see the problem through a different lens. In some sense, actually, we will get together at conferences. I know that there are other people that are working on different parts of this question, and actually, we will be seeing each other at conferences this summer. You know, I think actually things like this podcast or you know other types of media, whether it be blogs or news articles or something like that, can kind of help to bring the different pieces of this research together. For all of us, it's a jumping off point, and we'll, we'll kind of each bring these different parts together, and then, you know, whether it could be us that synthesizes it, or policymakers that are able to synthesize it, or journalists or that are able to synthesize it, I think, you know, we're going to kind of try to put it out there, and then, you know, hopefully we can find the complete answer to this question, you know, as a group, both in conferences and academically, but also, you know, for policymakers in general. Oftentimes we look to economists for specific answers on what works and what doesn't when it comes to policy, but that's just not the nature of social science. Instead, Egan and her colleagues are offering a framework to think through what makes a policy effective, to question its outcomes in specific terms, and to better consider whether those measured outcomes match up with the stated goals of policymakers looking to address unjust hiring practices. This is one important piece of the policy evaluation, but still I think just one piece. And I think that there are going to be other open questions that both hopefully myself, but also other researchers will, will hopefully get at so we can get the full picture uh, of how this policy is affecting you know, employment and other outcomes. So what's the downside of a field experiment? It's people powered, and that has its own challenges. A lot of our time and a lot more time than I expected was spent in some sense managing the actual experimental process. Um, and I feel like I really spent a majority of my research time over the last, say, year and a half um, basically working and running this, this particular experiment. Um, so it was a learning process, but a fun one. But I'm not sure I really realized it before we really started doing it, that exactly I was becoming a manager and that there was some things to learn along the way about how to manage a large team of, of RAs uh, doing this sort of work. So hopefully I can take that and, and move it into another project as well uh, so it's not completely... Uh, useless. <laughs> and then that made it much easier for us to start up in New York City. Um, I mean, there was still a significant amount of work involved, but a little bit less than when we did it in New Jersey because we already knew, you know, how to start collecting the data, where to find the information, how to find the RAs, you know, how to try to manage them. Um, you know, so that made it a little bit easier the second time around. Fitting real-world data into a model that makes sense isn't an easy task either. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely possible. Um, I don't have a lot of information on that, so we didn't notice other parts of the applications changing after the policy went into effect. Now, at the same time, we sent these applications, you know, only a couple months after this policy went into effect. So to the extent that employers are very concerned, let's say, about hiring criminals and they're very interested in finding other proxies or other ways around this policy, there is the potential that they might add other things to their applications. Maybe they're going to add more personality inventories or skills tests or they're going to ask other types of questions. We didn't notice that. I would say that we didn't really collect data on it. We have some data that you know we haven't really looked at yet. Um, but I think it would be interesting to go back, let's say a year from now, look at these applications again and see if employers are doing anything like this, see if they are trying to create other proxies. We didn't, we didn't notice it yet. There might not have been enough time um, and it wasn't necessarily the focus of what we were doing. Um, but I, I think it would be interesting to see uh, if that's one, there's one, definitely one potential reaction to this policy. If they think this is important information to uncover, they may just try to uncover it in some other way. The most likely conclusion from Megan's experiment Employers are using race as a proxy for criminal convictions. 
But you know, I think colleges have you know just very different utility functions to firms in many ways. Um, and so to the extent that they're trying to increase diversity or diversity of experiences, you know, I think you know it could be a good policy. Not sure if I need to be speculating on whether colleges, you know, whether it's a good policy for colleges or not. But, you know, to the extent that we might expect them to be statistically discriminating in the same way, that's very unclear, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And and I I would, you know, from my own just thinking about this, I I wouldn't expect necessarily that we would see a similar thing going on in colleges, you know, that... You know, black applicants would somehow be less likely to get into colleges because of this policy, although it's, it's, it's a plausible potential outcome. I think we need to do a lot of thinking, you know, about these sorts of policies. And I had done um, some research in the past on sex offender registration, you know, which found that, that those particular policies were not, um, you know, working in terms of decreasing sex crimes or decreasing recidivism. And I think in some ways that was similar. These, these policies spread like wildfire without, in some sense, any analysis of whether they were working. And so I think it's the same with these ban-the-box policies are spreading across the U.S. and then spreading to other places like colleges. And I think we're doing that very quickly without kind of, you know, stopping to think about what are the potential unintended consequences and do we need to do any analysis of whether this is working and working in the way that, that we want it to be. Employers may even be adapting to the new regulations in real time. So I, it's an interesting question and a hard one. Um, so I think I'll kind of start with the reverse for one second, um, in that I think that our economic models can give us insight into interesting questions that we can ask with field experiments. So in this particular case, you know, we have economic models that imply statistical discrimination, you know, may be one particular outcome of this policy. So maybe we can go ahead and test that. Um, But in terms of mapping the other way from our field experiment to our models, I think, as I sort of mentioned earlier, our field experiment can only kind of give us one piece. You know, the models are often complicated. They have different actors, um, lots of different actors, lots of different incentives, lots of different outcomes. Um, And so we can kind of, I think, say something about one piece of that model, but it's hard to say that our field experiment is going to say, okay, well, this model is definitely right or definitely wrong. You know, we're, we're implementing it in one time period, in one geographic location, in one setting with one set of employers. Um, and so I think we can give some some bolstering to, to saying, you know, this particular model looks like it's explaining, you know, this particular phenomenon. You know, but in terms of, of, of testing much broader models, I think that, you know, that can be a little bit maybe more difficult with. Uh, with any experiment or with, with, really with any methodology, you know, it's, it can be hard to get all of the components all at once. There's still a lot of work to do to understand how different institutions adapt to these sorts of regulations. For instance, college applications are beginning to remove the box now. What are the implications of that? Is there a similar pattern of proxy questions that could bear implicit discrimination? Given the outcome of our study, whether you think that makes, you know, ban the box policies kind of good or bad or effective or not, depends on your objective function. But to the extent that you think that these policies were going to reduce racial inequality in hiring outcomes, it's in fact doing quite the opposite. Understanding the limitations of one study examining one particular part of how ban the box policies work in the real world, how should Egan's results guide a policymaker who wants to respond to the problem? A lot of this this particular question, a lot of my particular research has been about the potential unintended consequences of policies. And so I would hope that it could help a policymaker think through, you know, I have this particular policy that I want to have this particular outcome, but could it have effects on other actors in ways that I'm not necessarily expecting? 
Um, should I, you know, maybe I would talk to myself or another economist or another social scientist, um, you know, try to think through what the potential consequences of this policy are. Maybe work with that social scientist to think about how to implement the policy in a way that actually reaches the objectives that I want and sets it up for potential evaluation so that we can say afterwards, you know what, yes, you were successful in implementing this policy and achieving the goals you were hoping, or oh no, no, you weren't, maybe we need to rethink this. And so, yeah, I guess I would, I would hope for that sort of symbiotic relationship. And, you know, any policymaker wants to contact me to evaluate their policies, I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to do that. For me, at least, yeah, it's important to think about implementing these policies in a way that makes uh, evaluation afterwards clear and easy to do and has, you know, clear causal implications um, in terms of what the effect of these policies are. And that, that's not always easy to do, um, um, but I would... I would hope that it's a goal, at least for, for some policymakers. Policymakers are implementing a policy such as ban the box. They're doing it with a particular objective in mind. And it seems like even just from, you know, not even from a, you know, trying to get elected standpoint, but just from if this is what you're trying to achieve, it seems to me like you'd want to know whether you actually achieved that or not, you know, whether this was actually, you know, doing exactly what you wanted it to do or whether you need to try again. I don't know, to me that seems maybe obvious. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. Our theme music is by Boris Mann 2, whom you can listen to on SoundCloud. The show is produced with help from Liz Braun and Tony Shears, and is edited by Mark Rickers. That's me. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.